0: If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Habakkuk. We're looking at chapter 2 this week. We looked at chapter 1, obviously, last week. It's on, I believe it's page 785 in your pew Bible. Last week, it was the sovereignty of God. That's really a, a thread that's woven throughout the book, but it, we really saw it last week. There's so much calamity going on in the world that Habakkuk sees even things that he believes are inconsistent with the character of God. So, how do we deal with that? Well, we trust God despite. We, we have limitations. We're finite. He is not. We trust him for all things. This morning, it's a, really the epicenter of this book The righteous shall live by faith, as Habakkuk says in verse 4 of this chapter. What does that mean for us? What does it mean that we live by faith in this world? Well, that's one of the things I want us to talk about. Let me read for you Habakkuk chapter 2. <clears throat> I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on table, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles in him, in him, for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have, desp- you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would come into our presence this morning. Would you teach us from your word? Would you give us great comfort from your word? Would you give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The Lord and his kind and good providence has brought us to this sermon passage this morning. It's not by accident. We needed to hear from Habakkuk chapter 2 this morning for such a time as this. This verse, or at least as Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, really was influential in the conversion of Martin Luther. He said he was chasing after all sorts of things, and he believed that his fasting, his intense prayer, going off by himself, his study, was going to earn something for them. He was looking to that to make himself right before God, but he was never settled. It never did anything for him until he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which is quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. He felt freedom from it. It it lifted this burden off of his shoulders that he had felt it's just about living by faith. That's what makes me acceptable before God. It thus propelled Martin Luther to do great things for the Lord. It led to the Reformation. First Pres, as you probably know, this week, on Friday morning, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in favor of legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Harry Reeder was asked, he's the pastor at Briarwood PCA Church in Birmingham, he was asked for his response on social media. His response was very short. The righteous shall live by faith. First, Prez, we need this verse today. We need this passage. Our hearts and our souls need it. We're discouraged. We're angry. We're uneasy. We don't know how we're going to go forward. What is this going to mean? The righteous shall live by faith. Will speaking against these behaviors be considered hate speech? What's our church going to do about this? What's going to happen next? Well, the righteous shall live by faith. We should not be governed by fear. We should be governed by faith. Let us not live in fear, but in faith. God is still sovereign. He's still sitting on his throne this morning. He's still in control. Nothing has taken him by surprise. He was not caught off guard. Well, let us not think this is the first time that a, that a nation has installed a, a law that is wholly against God's word and his will, and it won't be the last. We really are a privileged nation whose religious liberties have been protected for 200 years. Yes, they are beginning to be taken away, but we never trusted in them anyway. Yes, wickedness has now been codified in our laws of the land, but we don't submit ourselves to the morality of the government, but to the morality revealed to us by God and his word. It's okay to be saddened by the events of this week. It's okay. It's okay to be saddened by wickedness that we see around the world. It won't be the first. It won't be the last. But don't let fear reign in your hearts today. Let faith. Not faith in ourselves and somehow this resolve that we need to have in the midst of this, but faith in our covenant God who loves us and who is faithful to us. He was not surprised. He still rules in all power and authority. So where do we go from here? What's going to happen next? Well, maybe the Lord's going to raise up a man such as George Whitfield. Maybe he's going to raise up a man like Jonathan Edwards to preach and teach to evangelize. Maybe there's going to be great revival and awakening in this land. Maybe we're on the brink of the Holy Spirit doing a mighty work in this nation. And maybe we're not. Maybe it's going to get worse. Maybe it's going to get drastically worse. Maybe we will literally and physically suffer for our beliefs. But we will only then be in a long line of faithful followers of God who've done the same. Maybe we'll lose our lives. They were persecuted for righteousness' sake. Maybe we'll be like Polycarp, who was martyred in the first century, when the Roman proconsul told him to recount his faith in Jesus Christ. And he looked at the Roman proconsul in the fear of fire and the fear of the beast being let on him. And he says, 86 years I've served him. He's never once wronged me. How shall I blaspheme my king and my God? He has saved me. Or maybe God's going to do something completely different, something that we've never conceived of or couldn't possibly do it. Our response would be the same The righteous shall live by faith. No matter what, there is a coming judgment. Habakkuk makes this clear in our chapter this morning. And there's a short term fulfillment to that judgment as well as a long term fulfillment. To that judgment that we'll talk about. In the short term for us here, is God taking his hand of protection away from our nation? Perhaps he is. Is he giving us over to our sin? Perhaps the sin that we so desperately desire. There's persecution and suffering that is likely coming and certainly as the distinction between culture and the world goes greater and greater. The distinction between our views and the culture's views is going to continue to do this. But our hope has never been on this earth. Our treasures and our happiness have never been located here. Our hope is eternal, and it's secure. So what are we going to do? First, press. we're going to live by faith. That's what we're going to do. Not in ourselves, but in our covenant God who loves us. And he gives us the appropriate response for such a time as this. Don't despair. Don't give up. Don't stop believing in God. The promises of this world are empty and fleeting. Judgment is coming, so how are we going to respond? Here's my proposition. Because God's judgment is coming, we must respond to him in the only way that pleases him, according to Hebrews chapter 11, the only way we receive reward, which is by faith. So the first point in this chapter this morning is the righteous shall live by faith. How do we live by faith? So number one, it's unclear how long Habakkuk has had to wait for God's response but when God did respond, it was very clear. Habakkuk goes to the watch post, and he waits on God's response to his second complaint. John Calvin believes that what is meant by uh, so he may run who reads it, there you see and I believe, it's verse 2. It means that This this vision that that God was giving Habakkuk was supposed to be carved into stone, much like the Ten Commandments, and so big, it almost served as like a billboard that somebody who was, even somebody who was running past it could see it, discern it, and know exactly what it meant. There's a billboard. Judgment is coming. What are you going to do about it? Well, the righteous shall live by faith. There's this double aspect. There's a short-term fulfillment. The Babylonians are coming, and they're going to hurt you. They're going to torment you. They're going to take you into exile. And we see in Daniel chapter 5 that that's exactly what happens. God has ordained the Babylonian assault of Judah. There's nothing anybody can do about it. There's nothing that can do, be done to afford it. It's going to happen. So the question is, for them and for us, how are we going to respond? The righteous shall live by faith is one of the central themes of Scripture. It's the crux of the matter. It's the question for us in this life and also in the life to come. How are you going to live? Are you going to be afraid? Are you going to continually be afraid by what our culture does? Are you going to live by faith? Are you going to consider your eternal destiny and you're going to be fearful and say, well, what if I haven't done enough? What if I haven't been good enough? What if I haven't attended enough Bible studies? Are you going to live by faith knowing that I'm in Christ? That's all that I needed. I needed his perfect righteousness. So God begins to explain in verse 4, who this, this, uh, this puffed-up man, this, this proud and arrogant man is. It's the Babylonians. But it's more than the Babylonians. You see, the judgment's not just coming on the Babylonians. It's coming on anyone who is not living by faith. So instead of remaining self-sufficient and arrogant, the righteous have decided to trust in the faithful, promise-keeping God. That's the only way they can escape it. It wasn't about being a Babylonian or Judean. That's not where the battle lines were drawn. It was about living by faith. For us, it's not about your upbringing. It's not about your family name and the fact that many generations have attended church. It's not about your wealth. It's not about your political views. None of this will make you right with God. Your burden of sin is far too heavy. God is far too holy for any of these things to have any bearing on your eternal security and salvation. They can't take away your guilt and shame. William Temple says, The only thing of my very own that I can contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. This is what is meant in Genesis chapter 15. It says that Abraham was justified by faith. He he believed in God and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. That's what Paul's point is in Romans chapter 4. If there's been anybody that could have said, My works, I can boast in my works, it would have been Abraham. And Paul says, Even Abraham can't boast before God. It's justification by faith in God. Not anything that we do, not any lineage that we have. But what did Abraham know? What was the kind of faith that Abraham had? God calls him in Genesis chapter 12. To our understanding, he didn't know anything of Yahweh prior to that. And then God gave him his promises. And it wasn't just some knowledge that he stuck in his brain. What did then God ask him to do? Get up, and go to this place I'm going to show you. Basically, start walking, and I'll let you know when you've gotten there. (laughs) Little did he know, it was about a 1,500-mile walk that he would have to take. So it wasn't just promises he knew in his mind, it was action that he had to take. For us, it isn't just theology, though that's extremely important. We live by faith, by acting, by trusting, by not being fearful, but being confident in who God is. He has given us his promises in the same way. Are you trusting him? Are you living the way that would please him? What does it mean for us to live by faith in light of this Supreme Court decision? What does it mean? I was sitting at my desk in my office on Friday morning, and I got an alert on my phone that said, Supreme Court rules five to four, legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And I did what probably you, did. you all did. Just, you just kind of slumped over in your chair. And you're frustrated what does this mean? All sorts of questions. I quickly got on social media. What are are all the responses? That was a terrible idea. (laughs) I began to ask myself, what will this mean? What's it going to mean for our church and our witness? I even start thinking philosophically, logically, this means there's a lot of other behaviors this is going to have to allow. It's going to have to allow polygamy and polyamory relationships. It's going to have to. Am I going to be forced to perform a same-sex marriage? Or would be hateful for me to speak out against it? Have we really come to a place where five individuals with seemingly unchecked authority can make sweeping decisions that affect everyone in our nation? And then I had to stop myself. The fear is coming out. It's bubbling over, as I bet it did for many of you. Is what is happening wrong? Of course it's wrong. It's wrong because God's Word says that it's wrong. Not because it's our preference and not because it's our opinion. If this is just a preference or opinion matter, we will lose this debate miserably. It's against God and his divine ordering of the world. It's against what the Bible teaches in places such as Leviticus and Romans 1. Again, Harry Reader's voice is in the back of my head where he said, The world has made the unthinkable thinkable, the thinkable doable, and the doable now acceptable. Yes, we declare that it's wrong according to God's word, but we also, at the same time, welcome with open arms the sinner that commits the sin, just as we would with any sin. And we declare truth, the truth of God in a bold and a winsome way. We're not belligerent, and we're not obnoxious. I bet you've read a lot of articles and blog posts from this. I have, too. The best one that I have read, the one that's, I think, most pastoral, Is from a man named Russell Moore. He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. This is a long excerpt. Let me just tell you that up front, but I believe it's very good and very timely for us. As I write this, says Moore, the Supreme Court has handed down what will be the Roe v. Wade of marriage, redefining marriage in all 50 states. The court has now disregarded thousands of years of definition of the most foundational unit of society, And the cultural changes here will be broad and deep. So how should the church respond? First of all, the church should not panic. The Supreme Court can do many things, but the Supreme Court cannot put Jesus back in the tomb. Jesus is still alive. He's still calling the universe toward his kingdom. With this decision, I believe, ultimately will hurt many people and many families and civilization itself. The gospel doesn't need family values to flourish. In fact, the church often thrives when it's in sharp contrast to the culture around it. The church will need in the years ahead to articulate what we believe about marriage. We cannot assume that people agree with us. We cannot even assume that they understand what we mean. Let's not simply talk about marriage in terms of values or culture or human flourishing. Let's talk about marriage the way Jesus did, as so bound up with the gospel that it's a picture of the gospel itself, our union with Christ. Let us also recognize that if we're right about marriage, and I believe that we are, many people, excuse me, will be disappointed in getting what they want. Many of our neighbors believe that a redefined concept of marriage will simply expand the institution, and the church must prepare for the refugees from this sexual revolution. We must prepare for those, like the sexually wavered woman at the well of Samaria, who will be thirsting for water of which they don't even know. There are two sorts of churches that will not be able to reach the sexual revolution's refugees. A church that has given up on the truth of scripture, including on marriage and sexuality, They will have nothing to say to the fallen world. In a church that screams with outrage at those who disagree, what will have nothing to say to those who are looking for a new birth. We must stand with conviction and with kindness, with truth and with grace. We must hold to our views and love those who hate us for them. We must not only speak Christian truths, we must speak them with a Christian accent. We must say what Jesus has revealed and say them in the way that Jesus does, with mercy and with invitation to new life. Some Christians will be tempted to anger, lashing out at the world around us with a narrative of decline. This temptation is wrong. God decided when we—here's a key point—God decided when we would be born and when we would be born again. We have the Spirit and the Gospel, and to think that we deserve to live in different times is to tell God that we deserve a different and better mission field than the one He has given us. Let us joyfully march to Zion. The witness to marriage will be much like the pro-life movement. It's a long-term strategy. It's multi-pronged and multifaceted. There's no time for fear or outrage or politicizing. We see that we are strangers and exiles in an American culture. We are on the wrong side of history, just like we started, just like we should have been all along. Let's seek the kingdom. Let's stand for the gospel. Let's fear our God, but let's not fear our mission field, he says in closing. So how are we going to live? How are we going to proceed understanding the sovereignty of God and understanding that we must march on by faith in our God? What is the response that you'd like to have? No, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how bad it's going to get. But let us not worry. God has not forgotten about us. He has not forgotten about his church. He has not forgotten about his world. He has not ceased to be in control. We have so many questions. But God is still sovereign. He is still good. He still loves us. He is still seated on his throne, doing all that he pleases, as his word says. Let us, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on this book, let us move from fear and unto faith. Cling tighter to your Savior. The faithful person says, Lord, I believe in you. I believe in your word. I believe in all that you've done. I believe in all of it. But would you help me with my unbelief? So the first is, the righteous shall live by faith. The second is, living by folly and fear. Verse 5 transitions us. It's a transition verse that takes us from living, the righteous shall live by faith, into the woes. God gives five woes to Habakkuk. This is what's going to happen to Babylon. Babylon's not going to get away with anything. Okay? It's not that God has turned his back and Babylon is sneaking in there and doing what it wishes. There's judgment coming to Babylon. It's the arrogant man of verse 5. It says the Babylons are intoxicated with power and greed. They're like a drug addict. They can't get enough of it. They want to destroy. They want to kill. They want to take. Just as a drug addict wants its drugs. Although the nations were terrified of the Babylonians, judgment is coming. And God mentions this in the five woes. Woe number one. Uh, verses 6 through 8. The Babylonians have plundered many nations, but coming soon, they themselves will be plundered. There will be a great reversal. This is ultimately going to happen. The Babylonians are going to plunder the Judeans in 586, and then the Medo-Persians are going to plunder them in 539. But the righteous shall live by faith. The second woe in verses 9 through 11, King Nebuchadnezzar has pursued glory all for himself at the expense of everyone else prosperous kingdom, beautiful mansions, beautiful buildings that he built, but at the expense and the blood of other people. And in the end, there's going to be a reversal. All that he's gained, he seemingly gained everything, but he will lose literally everything. The third woe, verses 12-14. through Woe to him who builds a town with blood. The Babylonians have built and established their cities with violence. When visitors came and looked at Babylon, they saw these huge, glorious, beautiful, grand Structures. It was a beautiful city, but all God saw was bloodshed and injustice. The blood of the oppressed was crying out to him. It, 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 makes, it reminds us of Genesis chapter 4 when God is talking to Cain. He's just killed Abel. And God says to Cain, The blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. Injustice cries out to God. The fourth woe in verses 15 through 18. The wicked and unrighteous make other people drink and accept their ungodly ways. This was common practice for the Babylonians. They would get people drunk, and then they would make them do humiliating things, things that we could not possibly mention here this morning. It was a practice. Get them drunk, make them do humiliating things, and then laugh at them while they're doing them. And in verse 16, Jesus, or God, is going to turn this around on them. He says, drink. Drink, Babylonians. Drink up all the unrighteousness you want to. Get your fill while you can. In Psalm chapter 75, it says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he will pour a draft from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's what God is saying here. The cup is in the Lord's right hand and will come around to you. This is the cup of suffering. It's his cup of wrath. It's the cup that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 14 at the Garden of Gethsemane that he desired would pass from him. Don't make me drink this cup of suffering. cup of suffering. But Jesus did drink it for you and for me. There's a reversal that's going to happen. All those that do wicked, it's all coming to an end. The fifth and final woe in verse 19, it's about idolatry. God finds it ironic. You, You build these stone or wood structures that you made with your hands, and you worship them and give them authority and power over your own life. It seems silly. What you have made, you seek for answers and advice from. As I mentioned, there's a double fulfillment to all of these things. The short term is what we see against the Babylonians in Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar in Daniel 5 is now the king of Babylon. He's throwing this great party for a lot of his officials and his men that he trusts. They're all getting drunk, they're having this great feast, and then all of a sudden on the wall there's this hand and it starts writing. And everybody's freaking out. Obviously, we would probably do the same. What in the world is that hand? What does this mean? All this drunkenness and idolatry is going on. There's a handwriting on the wall. Daniel is brought in to interpret it. Daniel says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And at that that very moment of this party, The Persians are scaling the wall, and King Belshazzar would be killed that night. This is the fulfillment of these woes that Habakkuk has just given. And all throughout these woes, there's this turning of the tables, this judicial irony, as the commentators would say. It's it's similar to the story of Esther. Haman wants to wipe out all the Jews in the land, and so he builds these great gallows on which to hang them. But at the end of the story, it's Haman that's hung on those very gallows that he built. Of course the greatest act of judicial irony or retributive justice if you want to say it that way is the cross satan thought he'd he'd won a battle he thought he'd gotten a leg up the savior has died but it was the moment of the greatest hope the the conquering of sin and death the, the resurrection came afterwards what this book what this chapter is pushing us toward is that there is a judgment that's coming that that was the purpose of the billboard the carving of the vision There's a verdict that's being asked of us here. All the violent persecutors of God's law, the haters, the unbelievers, this is the judgment that's coming. But it's coming for everybody. We can't thwart it. We can't do anything to avoid it. It's coming, literally, for everyone. So what will you do? Lastly, point three, what will you do about the coming judgment? It says in verse 20, there's going to come a point, the whole earth will be silent. Everything's going to stop. There's a summons at the end to all the complaints, all the answers, everything will stop. How are you going to respond? God's not uncaring. He's not absent. He's in his holy temple. In order to hear God speak, often we need ourselves to be silent and to listen. This passage, as we come to the end, it's piercing. Every single one of us, no matter how long you've been in the church, no matter if you believe you're a Christian or not, it's penetrating. It's asking you, what are you going to do in the judgment? Who or what are you trusting in, in the end? There's a side that seems right to the world, one of glory and fame that exalts mankind in his thinking. There's one that sometimes seems right to us, a fear. Why don't I just give in? Why don't I just capitulate? Why don't I just change my, thought, my theology to make it a little bit more palatable to the world around me? Don't we just need to love one another and just accept everyone's views? What about you? Do you stay close to the church because you hope a little goodness and righteousness might rub off on you and be of benefit to you? It's been said, if charges were brought against you, maybe one day in the future it'll be this way. If charges were brought against you that this, this man, this woman right here, they are a follower of God, they professed Jesus Christ, and you were taken to court over it, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would the evidence be compelling and enough to convict you of being a follower and lover of God? Why are you here this morning? Why did you get dressed? Why did you decide that coming to First Pres was a good choice for you this morning? Is it just out of habit? Well, that's okay. Sometimes habit is very good. We said, out of genuine faith in God, I need to hear from him today. I need to be filled again by his spirit. I need to come and worship my great Savior. I believe in his promises. I believe in his word. I want to come and be with his people. Or maybe you came because you're just hoping some good morals get rubbed off on your children. They need this. Maybe you came, you're a student, and you're just tired of your parents bugging you about coming to church. So you came. So they'd quit griping at you. Maybe it's because you live in the South and this is culturally just kind of what you do. Maybe you hear here because you think by coming to church it's going to earn you something. God's got to, this has got to count for something, right? There's a judgment that's coming. Habakkuk is very clear on this. No, none of those things I just mentioned are going to be any, of any value to you in the judgment. The only thing that will be of value, did you live by faith? Did you live by faith in Jesus Christ? That's the instrument that, that we use so that God, so the, the instrument of faith is what God uses to bring blessing upon us. It's not the strength of our faith, but it's the faith that we need unto salvation. His judgment is coming and we cannot stop it. The only acceptable response is that the righteous shall live by faith. Many of you know the name Al Baker. He's a friend of this church. Uh, I believe he worked here uh, A number of years ago, uh, he went on to do church planting and then uh, now he works for Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship, which is an arm of the PCA. Uh, He's also the director of the Church Planting Network in Birmingham, for the state of Alabama, but lives in Birmingham. If you know Al, you know that he is an evangelist, uniquely gifted for evangelism. I have been on college campuses with him before. It's just amazing to see him talk to students. He is so gifted in how to do that. He shares a story when one evening he went to UAB, the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He saw one student, a young man sitting on a bench on the quad on campus, and he walked up to him, engaged him in a gospel conversation, and as he tells the story, this man, this young, young man, prayed to receive Christ. He called on the name of the Lord. Al said, as a result, I put him in touch with the RUF director. I even called a PCA pastor in the student's hometown. And he said to the young man, If indeed you are in Christ, then God your Father has loved you forever. The Lord Jesus has died for you. The Holy Spirit has directed me to you on this day for precisely such a time as this. We all have an appointed time. God does this sort of thing every day. And if you're ready and willing to be used by him, he can do the same for you. Is this the question that you needed this morning? What are you going to do in the judgment? Are you going to live by faith or are you going to continue to live by fear and by folly? Maybe this is precisely the appointed time for you and for your soul that you needed to come to terms with this question, that you needed to ask it. Maybe you didn't know the answer to that question or you've been rebelling against God or perhaps you thought you knew the right answer, but this sermon passage has revealed to you that you did not. Maybe this is the appointed time when you start living by faith, walking by faith in God. This is the most important question that you can answer in your life. Do you love him? Do you follow him? Have you put your faith in him? Or maybe you just need to share this with somebody today. You are walking faithfully with the Lord, but a friend, a family member, a coworker, someone that's dear to you is not. There is a judgment that's coming. We can't pretend that if it's not. You can't just, well, I don't believe in that, so, so there isn't a judgment coming for me. There is a judgment coming for everyone that's ever lived. What will your answer be? What will you do for that person that you love and that you care for? This is what Charles Spurgeon says. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell is to be filled, let it be filled with the, in the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go unwarned. Let no one go unprayed for. Loved ones, there is a judgment that's coming. Are you in Christ? Put your faith and hope in Him. He will save you. You will have eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would give us faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. That's the only thing that is of eternal value for us. Lord, we, we confess we are pulled and yanked in so many different directions, our minds and our hearts. Would you steady us by the truth of your word? It's the only thing that is foundational. It's the only thing that doesn't change. Would you give us faith in Jesus Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, for our song of response?